0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Recovery from Relapse meeting on Tuesday, the 6th of December, 2022. And today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Gail N. Gail um, hails from Bolton in the UK, which is part of uh, Greater Manchester, and I'm very lucky to count her among one of my friends as well. So I'm going to hand it over to Gail now to tell you her experience, strength, and hope. Take it away, Gail.
1: Thank you so much, Rita. Hi, everybody. My name's Gail and I'm a compulsive over and I am so grateful to be here today. And thank you to everybody for making this meeting possible and uh, a really special shout out to Rita, who established these meetings during the pandemic. And I know uh, they have brought incredible hope to many, many people. So, yeah, thank you, everybody. And I always feel really blessed when I'm asked to kind of share my experience, strength and hope. But I feel particularly blessed to be sharing in the recovery from relapse meeting uh, because relapse is very much part of my story. It doesn't have to be part of your story. Um, It absolutely doesn't. But it was definitely part of mine. And, um, yeah, I guess relapse took me to a very, very dark place. And I feel really passionate about talking about it because you know in those dark years I felt like I was the only one who couldn't get this and having had recovery and um, and being in relapse uh, knowing that OA had worked before and I couldn't avail myself of that solution was absolutely soul-destroying. So it feels really special to be able to share my story in this meeting and this is just my story. So if your disease pitches up differently to mine please don't let that put you off um you know I believe that you know this disease has many manifestations but we all have the same disease and we and it is the same solution and I guarantee that if you don't identify with how this disease pitched up in me um you will find somebody in these rooms that has got your story and What I'm going to share today in terms of my experience, um, that is very much my own. But a lot of what I share, I have heard in these rooms and in the abundant recovery resources that are available. And I just think that's just a wonderful, um, almost like the circle of recovery. You know, I hear things that really resonate with me and then I get to share them with other people and on and on it goes. And that is just a really wonderful um, element of recovery. So, yeah, I guess that the kind of condensed version of my story is that OA has saved my life twice. And I am eternally grateful to the human angel who 12-stepped me. And although she isn't one of us, um, she knew about OA. And uh, I'm really grateful that she still plays a very special part in my life today. And um, I met up with her a few weeks ago and uh, was just saying that, you know, When it boils down to it, you know, you had a part in saving my life because I might never have found a way if you hadn't have told me about it and planted that seed. So I came into a way back in 2008 and I had five years Really good recovery. And then I relapsed on Christmas Day night, 2013. And I was in that horrendous place for seven years. Came back to away um, at the start of what was lockdown in the UK in March 2020. Um, And in terms of the numbers, I think Rita's going to just show some pictures. Uh, In my first recovery, I released 140 pounds by um, a hand that wasn't mine. And then in relapse, all of that weight went back on. And then some, and I came back in um, March 2020 at a top weight of 345 pounds. And again, you know, by my higher power's grace, um, I have released around 168 pounds. I don't weigh myself anymore, so I don't know exactly, but it it is around those numbers. And the pictures just very briefly show me um, as a child. I was a normal body weight as a child, and uh, I was a normal body weight when I got married. I've been married for 36 years. And then the next picture shows me in France, um, in Paris, actually, on my 40th birthday, um, well and truly in the disease. And I was utterly, utterly miserable in that photograph. I can still remember that photograph being taken and just how miserable I was. Um, the next photograph at the top is uh, probably six months, I think, into my recovery journey, um, the first time round. And actually, that was at Rita's beautiful wedding. And. Um, And uh, yeah, that's, um, that was kind of about six months into my uh, recovery journey. And then the bottom left um, is, is in my first recovery, the middle two pictures, um, I think show the pain of, of relapse. And then the final picture on the right um, is what I look like um, just for today. And I truly believe that that is just for today. So thank you, uh, Rita and i guess you know there is no um there is no outward reason why um i should be a compulsive overeater i had a very stable and happy childhood but i was a very very fearful child and a lot of my childhood memories are fear based memories but you know we're reminded in our invitation to you that we have learned that the reasons for the illness are unimportant and what deserves the attention of the still suffering compulsive overeater is this there is a proven workable method by which we can arrest our illness. And, you know, I could, I could spend hours thinking about why have I got this disease? Why am I like this? But I've learned that that doesn't matter. What matters is there is a solution and I can avail myself of that solution. And I'm just going to share my story today um, through talking about the steps as they make sense to me. And again, if you're working with a sponsor and you hear something different about these steps and it's working for you, then, um, you know, Please don't take on board what I'm going to say, uh, because there are many, many ways of working these steps and there are many, many ways of finding paths to recovery. Um, so please, if you're doing something that works, then, you know, this this uh, this this may not be useful. But I guess in relation to step one, you know, how do I know that I'm powerless over food? Um, and I had a, a 20 plus year battle with food before I came into these rooms and I had tried so many things to control my eating and my weight and you'll all have your own experiences. Um, I think to my knowledge, the only thing I didn't try was surgery. And I know that if I hadn't have found a way that would have been added to my list because I was utterly, utterly desperate and, you know, my eating knew no bones, um, And it got progressively worse over the years. It got progressively worse. And I know that I have the capacity and the ability to eat myself to death. And my top weight of 24 and a half stone when I came back in March 2020, I know that the disease hadn't finished with me then because I, I, there is absolutely no way I can stop eating if I am not in recovery. And, you know, I was either eating or I was being tortured by food thoughts. I had this kind of constant noise in my head. And what was really, really scary was that none of the consequences were powerful enough to stop. So, you know, finding it really difficult to walk upstairs Um, the simplest things like turning over in bed being excruciatingly painful Um, all of that the constant heartburn I had I had kind of antacids in every drawer every bag I had um, all of that was not enough to stop me from compulsively overeating and it just was getting worse and worse and worse and you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into some of the things that I did because as I say you'll all have your own Harry stories you know what I'm talking about um but just as an example you know I would regularly on my way home from work um I worked ridiculously long hours and you know my hobby would have cooked uh, our evening meal and I would regularly on my way home from work um go to the local retail park go to one of the drive drive-throughs order two um big meals um obviously with two drinks so that the server would think that they weren't both for me and i would tip the drinks out on the floor when i'd got through the drive-through and i would eat what i had bought and then i would drive um across the retail park to the other drive-through and repeat exactly the same behavior and that is just one small example of the insanity of, of what this disease, um, of what this disease did to me. And I know today that one of the major factors in my powerlessness is that my body reacts abnormally when I put certain foods into my body and I cannot do anything about that. And again, what was really, really scary was that in relapse, I went back to all those things I knew didn't work. And I went back down the pay and way. um, clubs um you know the self-help books all of that I went all the way back in into that insane behavior um knowing that OA was the only thing that ever ever worked for me um and as I said in the beginning I thought I was the only person who could not do this or could not get this And then I guess in in terms of the second part of step one, in terms of my unmanageable life, you know, on on one level, I struggled to get my head around that because this disease robbed me of many, many things. It robbed me of my self-respect, my self-esteem, my self-confidence, my self-love. But it didn't rob me of an amazing career. You know, I got to the top of my profession. Um, It didn't rob me of an amazing marriage. I've been married to a fabulous guy for 36 years. Um, I've got two beautiful children and I've got many, many wonderful friends. So part of me couldn't get my head around that. But actually, when I really looked at what was going on, I was just living in this place of constant fear and shame I was trying to control everything and everybody because I believed that life had to look like this in order for me to feel okay. And as it describes in the big book, I was restless, irritable, discontent. I've also heard that described as uneasy, easily annoyed and never satisfied. And that was absolutely me. And life was all about me and having my needs met. So actually, my life was unmanageable. And I would use anything to change how I was feeling. And, you know, it wasn't always changing bad feelings, difficult feelings, of course I I did that. Um, But I also used food to intensify feelings of joy and celebration. And you know, I've used lots of things to change how I've I've felt. I've used alcohol, I've used food, I've used shopping, I've used people. And I had a I even had a really scary kind of 72 hours on a cruise one time um with the slot machines. So, you know, I can use anything to change how how I'm how I'm feeling. And I guess you know for me step 1 there were there were quite a few important realizations in there and i think it's it's kind of no coincidence that out of 164 pages of instructions in the big book 43 of those pages are around step 1 because i needed that level of convincing about this disease and what i know through my experience and through working these these steps and and working with fellows is that my life is not unmanageable because i compulsively overeat and for many many years i thought that was the case i know today that i am a compulsive overeater because my life is unmanageable and i need to compulsively overeat to feel okay and change how i feel and that was a really important realization and then The other thing that I learn is that there are four things that make me different from my friends and other people. And I have friends who sometimes occasionally get an effect from food, but they don't have these four things. And the first thing is that I have a physical allergy, that when I eat certain foods, I cannot stop eating them. And if I don't eat those foods, then I'm not triggered. So as an example, I have an allergy to um, a particular type of fruit. So I never eat it because I get really, really unpleasant side effects if I even touch this particular type of fruit. But the difference is, the second thing I have is I have a mental obsession that tells me that I must eat those foods that I'm physically allergic to. But when it comes to that piece of fruit, I don't have a mental obsession that tells me to buy it or to eat it. And that is what's different about me and my alcoholic foods. I have a mental obsession that tells me that I must eat those foods. And it's a very seductive, compelling voice. And it's linked to the fact that I can't tell the truth from the false. So I believe that voice when it says you just need to have one, just have one of those and you'll be fine. That will satisfy you. Or it says things like, you know, just have this one binge and then you'll never need to binge again. You'll get it out of your system and you'll be absolutely fine. You can start again on Monday. And of course, none of those things are true. And then the fourth thing that makes me different that I've learned is that I have this mental blank spot. So I can only see what food is going to do for me. I can't see what food is doing to me, i.e. leading me to a slow and painful death. So that bit of my brain that's wired that keeps me safe from walking out in front of a moving car absolutely does not work when it comes to food. And, you know, there's a number of descriptions in the big book about about this disease. And and some of the words that are used are kind of permanent, progressive, fatal, cunning, powerful, baffling. And that is my absolute experience, because at the start of my relapse journey, I ate sugar in a in what was kind of billed as a healthy breakfast option. And I was on holiday in New York at the time, and um, I did that three mornings, and yet I came back to the UK, got on my food plan, and I didn't end up back in the food for another six months. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. But that is the cunning, baffling, powerful nature of this disease, that I did that. I ate ate something that I was allergic to, but it didn't manifest itself as a full-blown binge for another six months. And that is why this disease is so difficult, because it's unpredictable. Um, And I guess the other thing that I've learned is the importance of setting aside everything that I think I know. And I heard um, I heard a speaker say that what I think I know is the biggest noose around my neck and for me the set aside prayer is really really important and on page 58 it it really speaks to me when it says that you know some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely and I have to constantly remind myself of that that I know nothing I have no idea how my life should be when I'm left to my own devices I can't even nourish my body properly with food and I guess what I've realized is that that's really contrary to to normal life, because in normal life, one plus one equals two. But in recovery, one plus one equals five. And in normal life, I'm expected to know how to live my life. I'm expected to know how to work my washing machine, how to, um, you know, cook a meal, how to do my job. But in recovery, the best thing I can do is put to one side everything that I think I know. Because when I do that, I have a completely new experience, and I also learned that I was powerless, but I'm not helpless. So I can take action. You know that my higher power is not going to go to the shop and do my food shopping. My higher power is not going to cook my meals. I have to do those things. I have to take action, and. You know, there is no plan C for me. You know, I I don't come to the recovery table, hop, skipping and jumping every day. There are some days when I don't want to do what I have to do. But my experience tells me that there are only two plans for Gail. And one is to be in recovery and the other is to be eating myself to a slow and painful death. There is no plan C, no matter how many times... Some days I wish there was, there is no plan C. And I know that because I have tried many, many plan Cs and they just do not work. And I know today that I have a spiritual sickness and that is why I compulsively overeat. And that really, really helped me because that reinforced the importance of working these steps because that's the only thing in my experience that is going to treat this spiritual sickness. So then in step two, well, step one I've just talked about shows me that I don't have any power and food completely and utterly controls me. So if I have no power, then I'm going to need a power, because if not, then I'm just going to be living in this disease and food will continue to control me and overwhelm me. And when I'm not in recovery, then food is that power. And I think there's a, a really, a really important um section in the big book on on step two on page 46 and it says that as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things so whatever we want to call that power it doesn't matter we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction provided we took other simple steps We found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. So as soon as I realize that I can't do this and there might be something out there, I've no idea what it is at that point. There might be something out there that can help me. Then I get that first infusion of power. And, you know, my experience is that I have no idea who or what that power is. But I know if I follow the instructions in the big book, I seem to be relieved of this food obsession one day at a time and given what I need to live my life because I am able to connect with that power when I work these steps. And you know, I've looked everywhere for a higher power because, you know, I want to understand it, I want to know what it is. And I often use the um the sat nav analogy. You know, Rita will absolutely testify that I have no sense of direction whatsoever. So I am entirely reliant on my sat nav, but I never think I'm gonna get, I don't understand how it works, by the way. I have no idea how my satnav works, but I don't get in my car and number one try and understand it. I don't get in my car and think. I'm not going to be able to hear it today. I don't get in my car and think it's going to give me wrong directions. And I don't get in my car and think, well, Rita's sat is going to work for her, but mine's not going to work for me. I don't think any of those about my satnav, but I can think all of those things about my higher power. And on page 55, it tells us that deep down in every man, woman and child is the fundamental idea of God. And yes, it may be blocked, but it was there. And that's why working steps four through nine are so critical, because that's how I start to become unblocked so that I can connect with this power that I don't have to understand. And I I heard a speaker say that, and this really, really spoke to me when I was trying to understand the concept of a higher power, that, you know, a wave is part of the sea, but it isn't the sea. So God is a part of me and I'm a part of God, but I'm not God. And that made a huge amount of sense to me. And, you know, my life without a higher power. Thank you. Thank you. My life without higher power is described on page 52 in the section that is known as the bedevilments. So, you know, I have trouble with personal relationships. I can't control my emotional natures. And the list goes on that describes my life when I am in self-will. But if I follow the instructions in the intervening 30 pages, then the promises show up in my life because 30 pages later, we're in the promises. And, you know, what is that if it's not a miracle? That is just amazing. And some of the things that really helped me on step two was to, you know, take a look at some of the old ideas I had of God. And on on a piece of paper on one side, I wrote what were my old ideas and prejudices towards God And then on the other side of the piece of paper, I wrote, if I've got a loving, kind, compassionate, higher power, what would that response be to my old ideas and prejudices? And that really, really helped me. It's helped me to name my higher power so that it's personal. And it's really helped me to um, accept that I may never understand my higher power and to know that I'm on a continuous journey uh, through step 11 in terms of developing that relationship with my higher power. So I guess moving on to step three, the the pages that kind of lead up to step three in the big book really describe my problem and why I need a higher power, because it tells me that self-will does not work. It tells me that trying to control others is absolutely futile. It tells me that I am the root of all my troubles and it tells me that selfishness will kill me and only God can change that And in step three, all I was doing really was making a decision to carry on with the rest of the steps, because it says, you know, step three is only a beginning. I wasn't really handing anything over because I, I still had an intact ego because I hadn't worked the rest of the steps. So step three for me was more of a decision that, you know, yes, I absolutely said the step three prayer and I understood intellectually what the step three prayer was saying. But it wasn't until I worked the steps that I was truly able to give myself to a higher power. And I guess steps four and five for me were, were that kind of start of that unblocking process. And I think we can get really caught up in the complexity of step four and five. And what I say to sponsees is, you know, let's just keep this really simple as it's described in the big book. And I believe that steps four is really just showing us two things. It's showing me what needs to change in me with God's help, i.e. step six and seven. And it's showing me what amends I need to make in steps eight and nine. And again, you know, the big book tells us on page 71 that, you know, we hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. And again, step three tells us, when it describes kind of what, what we are like when we're in self-will, how critical doing step four and five is because we're told that resentments are absolutely fatal because if I've got a head full of resentments or a head full of fear, then I am going to be blocked off by the sunlight of the spirit from the sunlight of the spirit. And then I am on my own and I never know when those food thoughts are going to come And if they come and I'm not connected to my higher power, then I am in real trouble. And step four might not be easy, but it is critical. And then there's a a lovely bit on page 124 in the big book that I just love when I'm doing step four and five with with a sponsee. Because it talks about in God's hands, my darkest past is the greatest possession I have because it is the key to life and happiness for others. So I can lose that shame because my step four is really going to help somebody else. Um, I start to be honest and I start to know that I can trust another individual. And I see that I'm an imperfect human being. And also as part of this process, I start to look at my ideals. Uh, So, you know, what is my ideal as a daughter? What is my ideal as a mom, as a wife? And I can ask God to help me to grow towards those ideals. And then in step six and seven, you know, just as I couldn't put the food down without God's help, I cannot change without God's help. Um, and, you know, when when I'm connected to my higher power around six and seven, it it kind of softens my heart and I start to see life and people through God's eyes and. Um, And although there is only God can change me, I can take some action, just like I can take some action around my abstinence. Um, I can pray about my character defects. I can identify them um, and I can practice pausing. You know, when that thought comes in my head that I think my husband would benefit from me telling him how to fold the towels properly. I don't have to do that. I can pause and think, do I need to say that? Do I need to say it now? And do I need to say it? Is it me that needs to say it? And usually the answer to all three questions is no, it doesn't matter. It's just me wanting life my way. And I'm an absolute work in progress on that one, because I still sometimes can't keep my mouth shut and then I have to make an amend. So talking of amends, moving on to step eight and nine, you know, very much about setting right my side of the street. And there's some really great guidance in the pages in the big book about making amends Um, and asking God to guide me was really important. Working with my sponsor around my amends was really critical because I can't be objective about those things. I need help. Um, I say a daily prayer. To ask God to show me if I've any more amends to make because I am I am I've been taken through the twelve steps, um, and just trusting God with the whole outcome of making amends because you know I, like, that is not my part. My part is to make amends and clear my side of the street. How that is received is absolutely none of my business. So I'm just going to kind of uh, round my uh, my share up with talking about the last three steps. So steps 10, 11 and twelve, and I heard it said in, a, in, um, in a, a workshop, I think it was, I was listening to that in step 10, I watch for me and I clear my channel. In step 11, I watch for God and I fill that channel. And in step 12, I watch for others and I empty the channel. And I also heard it described as these steps 10 and 11 being pipelined to the power and they are the growth steps. And, you know, even though food has been in its place for, I don't know, what is it, two and a half years, I can still at times be spiritually sick. And there is usually at some point in any given day where I am spiritually sick and have some thoughts that aren't helpful. And I know that that's why I need to continue to watch for for old behaviors and grow closer to my higher power. And there are really, really explicit instructions in the big book around how we practice steps 10 and 11. And it's not about beating myself up. You know, I have to remind myself that I am an imperfect human being, but then I handed myself over to the care of God, not a God that's going to beat me up or wait to trip me up or, um, you know, there's going to be retaliation for what I might have done. It's about growth, understanding and self-compassion. And I certainly do not practice steps 10 and 11 perfectly. You know, some mornings all I can do is wake up and just say, please, God, just give me the gift of abstinence today um, and let me help others. And sometimes that's all I can do. Um, and just on page 517, um, that was this dinner. really... Thank you. Uh, This really spoke to me um, because I, I go to a meeting where we read the stories at the back of the big book, which I absolutely love. And it said, I didn't want to drink that day, so I didn't want to compulsively overeat that day, but I took no action to ensure against it. You see, I believe that we get more than one moment of grace from God, but it is up to us to seize the moment by taking action. So I have to take action every day to ensure against relapse. And step 12, um, you know, is just for me, one of the biggest miracles of the program. I do not know what happens when I am working with other people, but it is just absolutely miraculous. Um, And it just really helps me to be connected um, to my higher power. And on on page 63, it tells me what my part of this contract is in the big book. So it tells me that my higher power is going to provide what I need but I have to keep close to my higher power. And the way I do that once I've worked through the steps is through 10 and 11, because that's what keeps me unblocked and enables me to be close to my higher power. But I also have to perform my higher powers work well. And I absolutely believe that is carrying the message and trying to practice these principles in all my affairs. And there are many, many warnings in the big book about not making the last three steps central to our lives. And I didn't heed those warnings in my first recovery. And, you know, I ended up in in relapse. I thought the wonderful life that OA had given me was a gale job and not a God job. And unfortunately, I can only see relapse in the rearview mirror. It's like being on the edge of a cliff in fog and not knowing that I'm about to fall off. Thank you. I'll just wrap up because my experience was that relapse happened in reverse. So in recovery, I put the food down, I become emotionally stable and I connect to God and in relapse, I disconnected from God. I became emotionally unstable and then I was in the food, but I could not see any of that was happening. And that is why I need to be really strongly connected to a sponsor, fellows and work this program because my life absolutely depends upon it. And um, I usually just finish um, any share that I do with this one um, sentence out of one of the stories at the back back of the big book, because I absolutely love the simplicity of this and it's on page 199. And it says that I won't have to drink, so I won't have to compulsively overeat if I remember one simple thing, to keep my hand in the hand of God. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you.
0: Oh, Gail, thank you so much. What a a brilliant message of depth and weight. And I'm just going to read two things. One is from the AA 12 and 12. When it talks about alcoholism, it says, or compulsive overeating. No other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol alcohol or compulsive overeating now become the rapacious creditor. It bleeds us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. Once this stark fact is accepted, our bankruptcy is going, human concerns is complete. And I was going to read a quote out of the big book as well at the back of the stories, which I too love. And it talks about, it's a guy who's been in prison actually, and he says he's remained very active in the awesome program of Alcoholics Anonymous. AA accomplished so many things in my life today. It has given me sanity and an all-round sense of balance. Now willing to listen and take suggestions, I have found that the process of discovering who I really am begins with knowing who I really do want to be. And although the disease of alcoholism inside of me is like gravity, just waiting to pull me down, AA and the 12 steps are like the power that causes an airplane to become airborne. It only works when the pilot is doing the right thing to make it work. So I have worked the program. I have grown emotionally. and. And intellectually, I not only have peace with God, I have the peace of God through an act of God consciousness. I have not only recovered from alcoholism, I have become whole in person, body, spirit and soul.